Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the BMO Capital Markets host a conference call on COVID-19, what it means this week. I'm now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you, everyone, for joining us for the sixth installment of our weekly COVID-19 conference call for the week of April 20th with uh, Dr. John White and three subject matter specialists at BMO Financial Group. On today's call will be, of course, Dr. John White, followed by Michael Gregory, Deputy Chief Economist for BMO Financial Group. Stephen Bell joins us uh, from across the pond uh, as Chief Economist and Portfolio Manager for Multi-Asset Solutions at BMO uh, Global Asset Management in London. And then I will follow up uh, with some comments with respect to investment strategy. And then we will turn uh, the tables back to you, the listener and the caller, uh, to ask your questions as needed. Before we get started, just a reminder to point to you to our BMO disclosures via the web link and close at the bottom of the invitation that you have received. And also, given that we are talking about very sensitive medical information, just a reminder that if you need medical advice, please uh, directly consult your physician and or your healthcare professional. Just as a reminder, uh, Dr. John White is a practicing physician in Maryland and, and Washington, D.C. area, so he is a frontline worker and soldier with respect to what's happening in coronavirus and COVID-19 right now. He's a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. White is chief medical officer, as previously stated at WebMD. In this role, he leads an effort to expand its strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues like COVID-19. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement for the Center of Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. FDA. And with that, I'm going to hand it off to Dr. John White. Dr. White? Thank you, Brian, and good morning and good afternoon to everyone around all the different regions. I'm going to start off with what we know and, and what's kind of the latest in the past few days. So as of just a few minutes ago, the total number of cases of coronavirus globally were over 2.4 million, with 166,000 deaths. In the United States, it's 760,000 cases and over 40,000 deaths. Almost half of those deaths are in New York State. An important note, if you're following this, is that how we define death has changed, it now can include probable causes of coronavirus. So that's important because if we look at deaths over time, we're actually going to see a change in categorization, which is important as we think about numbers. In Canada, there are 34,786 cases with about 1,580 deaths. The majority of cases and deaths are in Quebec and Ontario with over 28,000 cases between them and over 1,400 deaths. In Canada, there actually seems to be a flattening the curve. I've noticed sometimes on social media they call it flanking the curve in Canada, but the number of cases and the number of deaths, the rate has decreased 
And we're also seeing some of that in the United States, but it does differ by locality, by region. So it's important to look at that. And that feeds into the next important piece I want to talk about, which is what occurred last Thursday in the United States when the president unveiled guidance for a phased reopening, a phased reopening of the U.S. economy, leaving the final decisions to governors. It's an 18-page document. I'm going to include the link in the follow-up if you don't have it, but it recommends that states have to do a couple of things. He has these regional and state gating criteria that have to be satisfied before you can proceed to a phased opening. And what you need there is a downward trajectory in the number of confirmed coronavirus cases, as well as flu-like symptoms. Um, you also have to be able to have hospital capacity to treat patients without crisis care. And this is a key element. There needs to be a robust testing program in place, including antibody testings for at-risk healthcare workers before you can move to that phased reopening. And you need to have a comprehensive contact tracing plan. I'm going to talk about that. But just real quickly, the first phase urges existing measures to remain in place while you allow certain businesses, and this is just noteworthy, for some reason they include gyms specifically. So they highlight gyms to reopen if social distancing is possible. But it does still encourage telework to continue as much as possible. And if one does reopen, you need to close common areas. You also want to minimize non-essential travel. And some elective surgeries could proceed. That's an important element as well if they follow certain CMS criteria. The second phase makes recommendations for states and regions with no evidence of a rebound of COVID-19. And they had to satisfy the initial criteria on cases, hospital, and testing. So you still want to have vulnerable populations shelter in place, and you want to encourage people to exercise social distancing. Um, but there they do talk about non-essential travel can resume, schools can reopen, and large venues and bars can operate if you can have social distancing. So that may mean diminished seating, and that's relevant whether restaurants and bars, especially small ones, can function with that caveat. Um, but they still continue to encourage telework. And then the third phase is recommended only for states that have shown no signs of a spike in cases. Um, and that would allow public interactions, visits to nursing homes to resume, and that would allow bars and restaurants to expand their capacity. You still want to have some elements of social distance when possible, but you could have large gatherings so that they would encourage to limit time. And employers could resume unrestricted staffing in the workplace. So those were announced on Thursday. A couple of states have already started to talk about when they might lift guidelines. Idaho and North Dakota advised non-essential businesses to prepare for a phased reopening starting May 1st. Montana is going to begin lifting restrictions on April 24th. New York, the, the big thing there, I'll just mention, they actually updated a guidance on golf courses saying that you uh, could open the door to public and public public and private courses to open, but you'd have to walk the course and carry your own bag. You can't have a mobilized caddy. I'm just reporting it. Uh, and then in Texas, they're going to 
allow retail to go beginning April 24th. But what you're really seeing are governors are making regional policies. And that's important because we have porous borders between states, even between, you know, the countries in North America. So you don't want the low incidence state to become a high incidence state because of travel. So the governors of California, Oregon, and Washington are agreeing on a regional plan to reopen the economy and fight the pandemic. And on the East Coast, which has done very well, the northeastern states of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts are coordinating to reopen. There's been a lot of talk on prevalence, and even at WebMD, we've been focused a lot on how do we find out that right number. I'm going to share some of these articles. There's a lot of data in PrePub that is looking at different data sets. And one looked at CDC data of influenza-like illness estimated during a three-week period in March. And what should have been 122,000 cases were actually 8.7 million cases of coronavirus. So that's 80 times as many cases predicted using excess non-influenza, influenza-like illness. Similar study done in Santa Clara, California, based on antibody testing, estimated that infection rates are probably 75 times that of known cases, and really using some creative data analysis that we're going to see. And the reason why this is important, I want us all to think about, how would your decisions differ if I told you that instead of 750,000 cases in the United States that of people that are infected, we had 20 million or 30 million. And that's what we're starting to look at in terms of data. Because all the talk about vaccine, and I mentioned this before, this idea that we're going to wait to fully reopen our phase and until the vaccine is available is challenging because we know vaccine development typically does not take 12 to 18 months. Historically has not. You can look at SARS in terms of very little progress and then people love their attention to drug development when it it went away. Ebola is the same thing. And now in terms of treatments, and this is the whole issue of why we have to have good data, why we have to have controlled trials, there's been more discussion about potential side effects of hydroxychloroquine. And what we need now is there are many different trials currently going on, but it's a cacophony. And what we really need is an orchestra and a conductor. And I think we're going to start to see more of that from the Food and Drug Administration. Because there's a problem when we have gray data where it's inconclusive, especially in the age of social media. Because we have these anecdotal anecdotal reports of treatment that appear to have worked on a small group. And they're being shown and they're encouraging hope but confusion about the evidence. So we need to retool and I think we're doing that in terms of where we are in treatments. And we're certainly seeing that on antibody testing. So you all have seen a lot about antibody testing. We talk about it all the time, but we need to more effectively understand how these tests are doing. And I will point out on in New York where they're doing it, people are actually going into a lab and we're actually doing quantitative testing and measuring the amount of antibodies that they have. But what we're typically talking about on the news are these 90 companies, mainly based in China, that have created these point-of-care tests. Um, and it's a great idea, but what we're seeing is that many of the tests, and, and the administrator of FDA has said this, are frankly dubious quality. 
And then people aren't using them properly. Some physicians actually are using antibody tests to diagnose the disease. That's not what that's for because you can miss the early stages of infection. And the products vary in terms of their qualitative tests where they may measure a certain type of antibody. It tells you whether you have it or not. It doesn't tell you how many. It may not tell you that you actually have protection because that's what we're trying to correlate. The idea of immunity means protection, but it's unclear what levels are needed for immunity. So I think we're going to have more challenges with these tests and more discussion, but it's a mechanism to get back to work. And it's included in these gating criteria. While we still have to do testing in in terms of whether a patient is infected or not. But this leads to the issue of contact tracing and the role of tech. And many of you may have seen that Apple and Google have announced this initiative to have patients that are infected to log online to uh, an app, put in that information, and it's not using location tracking. It's actually using Bluetooth. So it could notify those folks that have come into contact with you. I think this is going to be iterative. There are challenges with this. It's completely voluntary. Typically, one says we need 60 to 70% of people to agree to be part of this. They tried it in Singapore. Only 15% of the population volunteered to do it. But this is a new way of thinking about tech and how we can use technology to do the important contract tracing that we need to have more of a surgical approach using a scalpel um, to remain safe and to identify folks rather than what we're using now, which really is a sledgehammer. And what we're also learning, and this is becoming readily apparent, is we have this pandemic, um, but we have to understand the role of public health and business. That's the issue now, working from home. And how does this relate to post-COVID? How do we have innovation, as others have talked about, in, in terms of how we manage our businesses? And a big concern I have that we're starting to see is what's the mental health crisis that's coming as, as a result of this? It's, it's physical distancing, really, although we've used the word social distancing. How's that creating loneliness? How's that creating challenges? How's that impacting the most vulnerable? So I think we're going to start to see a discussion of how do we address the mental health crisis, and the other social determinants of health. But what I'm actually um, optimistic about is I do think we have made tremendous progress in terms of reducing the number of cases and really flattening that curve. And despite the fact that I think we have a lot of issues of testing, and I think we'll, we'll continue in the short term, we're making progress on that, and that's important. And it's really about where we are a couple weeks from now than necessarily where we are today because we're moving in that direction. And I think we're starting to recognize the association between business and economics and public health policy and seeing it at a completely new level, which I think is going to be one of the biggest changes post-COVID-19. So still a lot going on. I think we're making progress. We're not all ready to go out to a baseball game yet. It's still about um, physical distancing. It's still about washing hands. Um, it's still about cleaning and dis- disinfecting services. Surfaces. But I said last week, I really think we can see a light at the tunnel. 
And I do think we're at that point, but we have to move carefully and deliberatively um, and use science to guide that. And it's going to be iterative. We're going to have some bumps, some up and downs. But I think we're finally um, starting to bend that curve and talking about how do we start to resume some sense of normal. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Brian. Thanks, Dr. White. Uh, we're going to now switch over to our subject matter experts here at BMO Financial Group. And leading us off will be Deputy Chief Economist Michael Gregory. Go ahead, Michael. Thanks, Brian. Good afternoon, everybody. Well, uh, as uh, Dr. White just mentioned, uh, that proverbial light at the end of the tunnel, we're beginning to uh, uh, see some signs of at least, but uh, we're also getting a picture of just how dark and gloomy that tunnel is, at least from an economic perspective. And last week, uh, there was a whole bunch of data that just really portrayed literally the weakest economy we've probably ever experienced uh, since the Great Depression. Uh, turning specifically to Canada, Statistics Canada came out with it. It's a very first uh, preliminary estimate, uh, a now cast of uh, GDP for the month of March. I'll keep minor st- uh, Stats Canada normally comes out with their GDP estimate two months after the end of uh, the period. And here they provided a preliminary uh, estimate uh, literally two weeks after the end of the month. And, and what they came up with was a 9% decline in GDP in the month alone. And that would result in a 2.6% decline. Uh, for GDP for the whole quarter at an annual and at an annualized rate that is more than 10% and that's going to turn out to be the weakest quarter that the Canadian economy has ever experienced since quarterly data began in 1961 and the, and the important thing to keep in mind here is the second quarter is going to be even worse why it's going to be worse is because April is going to be a rougher month than March was, and March was already pretty dismal. Keep in mind that a lot of the March indicators, even how bad they look, they do reflect the fact that we began the month uh, uh, with uh, social distancing and physical distancing only beginning, business closures were only beginning to proliferate. So we did have some activity in the early part of the month, but of course as the month unfolded, uh, we ended off where we are now, and that's going to be fully reflected in the April data. Uh, with respect to the United States, uh, we saw last week uh, retail sales for March were reported down 8.7%. That's the worst reading on record, and the Census Bureau has been uh, uh, providing the, those data since 1967. It's very interesting, despite the very poor headline number, some sectors within the retail category actually did a bit better. And that was actually food and beverage stores, uh, 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 health and personal care stores, as well as general merchandise stores. The latter won't be something like your Costco. All of them posted record increases in sales as, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of stockpiling and hoarding activity, which, of course, uh, has since uh, faded. Uh, uh, the uh, industrial production was down 5.4% in the month of March. That's the worst reading since 1947. And even housing starts dropped more than 23%, and that's the worst reading there uh, in more than three and a half decades. Uh, and, uh, again, keep in mind, all of these Poor numbers for March reflect the fact that the, the, the month began in pretty decent shape and only since, and as the month unfolded, began to weaken. We get a, a sense of how weak April is probably going to look, at least on the labor market side. Uh, we saw for the week ending April 11th that another 5.2 million Americans 
uh, file for unemployment insurance benefits. And that brings the total since the last uh, uh, labor report uh, to 22 million. And that is surely going to hoist the unemployment rate into double-digit territory for April likely above the previous post-war high of 10.8%, which was hit in 1982. The same thing that happened for Canada as well. The previous post-war high was 13.1%, also in 1982, and will clearly surpass that. Now, uh, given the sort of the weakness of these data, uh, we, we took another little uh, 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 slice of our, our, our forecast for growth for the full year. Uh, we now look for overall GDP growth in the United States to uh, uh, decline uh, on average 5% of this year, down from our previous call of a 4% contraction. And for Canada, to contract 6% on average this year, uh, down from our previous call of 4.5%. Now, we also had further developments on the policy front, uh, and that's, you know, as, as the data keeps getting weaker, uh, uh, the policy makers are, are, you know, are responding in kind, and we saw on the Canada side that the federal government uh, in their $25 billion loan program for small businesses, they uh, they expanded that program to allow more businesses to, uh, to get into that. The Canada Emergency Response Benefit, that $500 a week benefit uh, for individuals, was loosened uh, to allow more individuals to participate in that. And there also were programs announced for the energy sector and also for support for uh, commercial rent payments. Now, the Bank of Canada also had a, a major policy announcement last week and uh, indicated that they will begin buying uh, uh, provincial bonds, uh, $50 billion worth, and $10 billion, uh, $10 billion of corporate bonds in order to uh, uh, support the economy and, of course, support uh, credit markets, and, uh, and also will expand their purchases at auction of treasury bills. They would uh, previously uh, set their purchases at a 25% uh, limit of the auction size. Now they will buy up to 40%. Now, in the U.S., there was nothing new on the uh, policy front uh, 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 that was announced anyway, but what was very interesting was the uh, Paycheck Protection Program uh, that was run by the Small Business Administration. It was given $349 billion to work with by Congress as part of the CARES Act, actually blew through that amount in the first week of the program, and now there's a, 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 a movement in Congress to try and get more funding for that program, along with further funds for state and local governments as well as uh, hospitals. Uh, now, we happen to think that the combination of all of the these and other policy measures that have been taken to date will uh, lay the groundwork for a pretty uh, decent recovery once we, we begin to see the physical and social distancing rules beginning to be relaxed. Now, when that happens, as uh, uh, Dr. White mentioned, that we're not quite sure when that's going to happen, uh, and probably next month at the earliest where it begins, and uh, and it does seem that they'll be uh, uh, they'll be phased in in terms of this. So the full impact uh, on the economy will not be really be felt. They'll be kind of be phased in. But the key thing is that coming from the very low basis we have, we will see pretty strong economic growth. Uh, to start off that recovery, and I think that that's the main message here. That light at the end of the tunnel is not only about social and physical distancing, it's also the chance that we begin to see the economy growing again. And with that, I'll, I'll turn things over to my colleague from across the pond. Hi. Thank you very much, uh, Mike. That's, uh, that's a great summary. So we in um, BMO Global Asset Management, we're, we're sort of cautiously pro-risk. Um, and we certainly see the turnaround of the market as having been 
influenced very heavily by forced sellers turning into forced buyers, particularly rebalancing flows. But within our overall market, Europe is our least favorite region as far as equities are concerned, much, much less attractive to us than the United States. First of all, there's been a much more muted policy response in continental Europe than the United States. Yes, the European Central Bank has been highly active and innovative, but the response by the U.S. Federal Reserve has been even bigger and bolder. And when it comes to fiscal policy, the gap with the United States, but it's even greater, the U.S. stimulus, it's roughly twice as big as the, as the share of GDP as the overall fiscal stimulus by continental Europe. And Europe's stock market, well, that has a high exposure to banks and cyclicals, and they've been major victims of the crisis. And relatively few of those tech stocks which favor the United States, some of which have benefited from the crisis, like Amazon and others are relatively unscathed. The crisis has also shone a spotlight on some of those underlying weaknesses of the euro system. Italy, its economy's collapsed. It, it badly needs a massive fiscal stimulus, but it, it doesn't have its own currency, and that means it's constrained. It spreads on Italian bonds have widened. The rating agencies are being concerned, and many politicians in Northern Europe, they want Italy to cut its debt burden in the longer term and want to tie the help they give today to greater control tomorrow. And that has absolutely infuriated Italy. Now, the Eurogroup, a very important group, they meet on Thursday to announce their latest package. Will they meet Italy's concerns? We'll see. In S&P, they're reviewing the rating. And ultimately, if things go badly, this could see Italy's rating reduced to junk status. So it's a critical few days coming up for Europe. But it's not all bad news. The virus is coming under control. Daily growth in fatalities is now running at around, around 2% in Spain and Italy. Both are planning gradually to ease their lockdowns. And other European countries, notably Germany, they've done a much better job of controlling the virus and are also beginning to ease the lockdown. So the big test comes in two or three weeks' time. All the experts are expecting a second wave of infections. But will that wave be small and easily contained? If so, well, all will be well. If it's big and requires full lockdowns to be reimposed, that will be quite a dismal scenario. And whatever happens in Europe, it's Europe rather than Asia that will be seen as the template for what happens in the United States. Here in the UK, well, we've neither been the best nor the worst in terms of the numbers on the virus. I do think the government could have handled things better. But on the fiscal side, they've announced a truly radical package centered around paying 80% of the wages of furloughed workers. Problem with the stock market here is we have a heavy weight to oil companies, mining companies, and banks. And, and that's, that's not a good combination. The outlook for emerging markets is fascinating. Let's start with China. Now, you might expect, after all, that's where it started, 
the fiscal response has been pretty limited, that it would have done very badly. But the equity market has been one of the best performers year to date. And that probably reflects, almost certainly reflects, official support from government-controlled and a government-influenced institutions have been wading into the market. And we've had long-standing concerns of the governance of many Chinese companies. So we're a bit reluctant to buy a market propped up by official buyers. Oil exporting, emerging markets, well, they're countries that you want to be very cautious about as well. Many investors are very negative about countries, well, like India. They've got weak social safety nets, poor healthcare systems, and are unable to produce a really big policy response. That's all true. The U.S. fiscal expansion, for example, that amounts to an entire year of India's GDP. And India spent, well, spent the last decade trying to put their fiscal house in order. So there's no way that they can match the kind of packages put together by the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. But there's a positive side here. First of all, the number of cases in EM is very low by comparison to DM. And that's partly because they have much younger populations. And there's a chance, I don't know overstate this, but there's a chance that the virus just doesn't take hold in Italy, in, in, in emerging markets. India has implemented a pretty strict lockdown at a very, very early stage. They've, they've still had relatively few cases. And there's another intriguing and highly controversial issue here. I'd be fascinated by Dr. White's view, nearly all EM countries have full-scale BCG programs. There are two exceptions. Ecuador doesn't have one, and it's high up in the league table for virus cases. Iran's even higher, partly because they've got an older population, but also because they've implemented their BCG program only recently. In developed countries, Portugal has still got, it's an exception, most Developed countries have abandoned their programs, but Portugal has one, and it's got a much lower death rate than its next-door neighbor, Spain. Japan, they've got one too, and of course, they have a very low death rate. I've seen some statistical work, pretty good, which has convinced me that there is a link, but not all is convinced. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, well, they're very skeptical. So this trial's going place. And we'll just have to see. But if it does work, that giving the vaccine, giving the, uh, the PCG provides some degree of protection, that's a bit of a game changer. There's some positive fundamentals beyond that for emerging markets. The IMF have been very active, granting loans with little conditionality. The big investor outflows from EM began to stabilize. And their central banks, they've been cutting interest rates. And although this has given some of their currencies a bashing, they too have begun to stabilize. I wouldn't bet the ranch, but selective buying of quality EM companies. I think that's well worth considering. All in all, Europe and emerging markets have suffered very badly from this dreadful crisis. The world, well, it may never be the same again. The markets face a tough test as the numbers on the economy and corporate earnings get even worse, as Michael described. This week, in particular, and next. But if the lockdowns and the medical efforts work, the world should be much closer to normal a year from now. And if that's true, well, it should be good for all stock markets. Thank you, and I'll now hand over 
back to Brian. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate your comments. Before we give our comments with respect to the U.S. Uh, and Canadian equity markets, I'm going to hand it back to Patrick. And if Patrick, if you could uh, provide our listeners and uh, people dialed in to how they can ask questions uh, during that session. Certainly. We'll now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel the question, you may press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time. If you have a question, there will be a brief pause while the participants register for questions. Thank you for your patience. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, with respect to U.S. and Canadian equities, You've heard a lot about uh, what's happening in the world with respect to Stephen Bell's comments in terms of Europe, the U.K., and emerging markets. I think it just speaks volumes on why, at least for the near term, let's just say for the next three to six months at least, uh, that will continue to favor uh, what we're seeing in terms of, we believe, the, the relative stability of North American markets, not only in the United States but also in Canada. We continue to believe that Canada is a value proposition uh, to the U.S., number one. Uh, number two, I, I think there's been a lot of talk, especially <clears throat> the last week or two, has the stock market in both the United States and Canada, and Canada's been keeping pace with the United States, which is typically it does not during times like this. So I think that's very noteworthy. Uh, but there's been a lot of increased speculation and fears with respect to financials in particular, dividends, buybacks, things like that. Our analysts continue to be very steadfast that that the dividend exposure with respect to financials, both in the United States and Canada, continue to be quite strong. I know from our group, we've written extensively with respect to debt and dividends. All of these reports, of course, are available to you. And so I think the major, major question that we continue to, to face with respect to our clients that we speak to around the world is, you know, number one is that low, the low that we saw in the S&P 500 on, on March 23rd. We've been on record by saying yes. We've also said, too, that, yes, you want to default to high quality and stability. And these quarterly numbers that we're starting to see, roughly a little over 10% of the S&P 500's reported earnings, and clearly we're seeing a lot of front-end loaded negativity in terms of what the banks are saying and loan loss reserves and earnings growth. Quite frankly, the the more uh, seamless that we can start to reopen things and get back to business, and yes, we are going to see a new normal type of activity. We are going to see a change, uh, but we would never, ever bet against the wherewithal of the U.S. consumer in terms of trying to come back and get these things back. However, we do believe that it is going to be a bumpy road. Uh, the stock market is telling you that things are probably going to be better than, than a lot of the forecasts out there not doubting that there's going to be very bad earnings and very bad economic data. Uh, but the kind of revival that we've seen here uh, to date in terms of stocks is telling us something much different. And with that, Patrick, I'm going to hand it back to you and see if we can queue up some questions. Thank you. As a reminder, you may press star one if you have a question. There are no questions at this time. I would like to turn the meeting back over to Mr. Belsky. Thank you. I guess uh, we can ask uh, Dr. White here a question, if he could just clarify a little bit with respect to how Canada has managed uh, the crisis relative to the United States. Uh, is there any major differences in how Canada has managed this? You know, I think 
one of the biggest differences has really been the availability of testing in Canada. Um, it is a smaller population, as we all know, but early on, it allowed people who had symptoms uh, to get tested without having to meet the criteria we had in the United States. So that was one of the, the biggest changes that they had early on in terms of testing. They also did a better job early on of social distancing and often refer to it as physical distancing as opposed to social distancing, which I think is, is better not to confuse people. Uh, and they focused more on mitigation strategies early on. We were a little bit slower than Canada. That's where I think are, are some of the, the biggest elements in, in terms of it addressing it earlier on and much more aggressively. And therefore, I think they slow down um, the rate of cases that they otherwise might have had. Thank you for that. Uh, Patrick, any questions from the field? Once again, you may press star one. If you have a question, we have a question from Bobby Rusuli from First Realty. Please, uh, first of all, your line is open. Yes, thank Sorry, you. please go ahead. Um, no problem. Bobby Rusuli from First Washington Realty. I just had a quick question um, in U.S. equities, particularly um, pertaining to U.S. retail REITs. Obviously, they've seen their market caps um, slashed in half, if not more. I'm curious from the panel um, whether or not they see a material change in retail REIT stocks for the positive um, as this phase-in comes uh, to fruition and what that could look like. Well, thanks for the question, Bobby. I guess I'll tackle that. I know that we've been, we, I know that we've been keeping contact with our great REIT team in the United States, uh, in terms of a lot of the stocks that they cover. And they've been pretty, pretty clear in terms of some areas that have, that have specific stocks. So I'm not going to mention the specific names in terms of their on dividend watch, uh, in terms of their payouts. I think that's what a lot of people have been worrying from a, from a very big picture standpoint. There's a couple things going on. Number one, REITs in particular do much better um, relative to other higher yielding areas in, in excessively low interest rate periods. So that's why from a portfolio construction standpoint, we're overweight uh, in the U.S., not only REITs in the U.S., I'm sorry, but Canada as well. From, from a, another very big picture standpoint, if you go back and look at what happened in, during the crisis, of the financial crisis in 2008-2009, a lot of the bigger REITs had the kind of capital to be able to buy up underperforming properties and, and have some business combinations on the REIT side. I think that might be a, a, a theme that 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 could replay it uh, again during the current uh, situation. And our analysts are always are also looking at that. And then, lastly, this this whole notion of of retail and how retail looks and feels going forward. You know, for 20 years, we've made the case from an investment strategy standpoint that we're over-retailed and there's lots of capacity and capacity has to come out of the industry uh, from a longer-term perspective. Perhaps this is maybe going to force this issue, but the REITs, as you know, um, um, are are very well capitalized relative to they were 10 years ago and actually could could take advantage of these types of trends with capacity coming out of the marketplace in terms of swooping in to these properties and re-imaging, re-imaging them, I'm sorry, and moving in toward, you know, other, other re-types of, of properties. 
Hopefully that answers your question, Bobby. It does. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. We have a, an additional question from John Chen from BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hey, Brian. Just a few questions. Um, first, what are your thoughts on the timing for an infrastructure bill? Uh, how would your um, sector position kind of change if that were to come through? And um, what, what kind of size do you think you guys are contemplating? What are you hearing on that front? On a, on a size side of things, that maybe Michael Gregory can talk a little bit about that from a timing perspective. He might be able to key on that as well. But we have a we're paying for a lot already. I think uh, we're going to have to see see how the economy comes back, especially in the second half of the year. I think the the stronger this comes back, the better uh, in terms of being able to to put forward another uh, type of bill or, or any kind of fiscal response, additional fiscal response. I'm sorry, in terms of an infrastructure bill. One of the key themes, though, going forward is going to be potential repatriation in terms of companies leaving emerging markets and coming back to North America, not only the United States, but also Canada. That also could be a major, major theme um, the next six months. But we need, we need to open things up first and see how we get things going and how we're growing again as well. But I think that could also be a major point, Johnny. So in terms of how sectors work, clearly um, <clears throat> there's going to be a more of a need for raw materials, uh, so, so the material sector could be more positive. We could actually see more positivity with respect to energy, especially in the United States. Uh, you know, energy in the U.S. dip below three percent of the S&P for the first time ever in terms of its weighting. So there could be a little bit more of a player. And then the more traditional domestic industrial. It just depends upon what the makeup of 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 the infrastructure bill and who that's going to benefit. Michael, I don't know if you have anything else to add to the potential infrastructure bill. Sure thing. Well, if you recall that when the first talk of uh, phase four uh, fiscal package began, just as the fiscal three package, a CARES Act, was was passed, infrastructure was originally uh, part of that discussion. Uh, the president had talked about needing a trillion dollars, for example. It seems to be a number that gets mentioned a lot when it's uh, tied to infrastructure. The thing is, though, since then, uh, you know, the attention, I think, of both the administration and Congress is very much turned to just fighting fires. You know, I mentioned uh, that the uh, the small business lending program, you know, has basically run out of the $349 billion that they got uh, from, from Congress. They need more money. Uh, state and local governments need more money. We saw today, for example, Governor Cuomo is talking about needing a 20% cut across the board of state services to, to uh, 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 as, a, as a consequence of what the money they've spent in dealing with battling the uh, COVID-19. So states will need some help as well, and as, as, as well as local governments and, of course, uh, Hospitals. So I think basically this has taken the talk about infrastructure, and I think it's going to push it into the next administration, whether that is a second Trump administration or a first Biden one. I do think that infrastructure is not going to be something we will be seeing in this particular Congress. I think it's going to be pushed into after the election. And again, it's just simply because there are just more pressing, more immediate needs than the long Longer term things with respect to infrastructure, which, which of course the United States woefully needs. So, but unfortunately, it, it's not the priority right now. Thanks, Michael. Patrick, anything else on the line? There are no further questions at this time. I guess I'd like to ask one question of, of Stephen Bell, Stephen, if you're still on. Um, this, this notion of longer term implications. 
uh, for China, whether or not it's supply chain, politically, economically, coming from the from the virus. Do you have anything to add on that, or what you're hearing from from clients, or or what your group is doing? Well, clearly, um, the silicon curtain, if you like, that is descending between the United States and China, that is, in a sense, that animosity has been strengthened um, by this. And I get the impression, others know better than I, that the U.S. political scene wouldn't change dramatically if uh, Mr. Biden became president. As far as um, the supply chain argument, we've had a number of incidents that have caused companies to question that whole supply chain argument. I mean, Fukushima was the first one, um, which really interrupted lots of supply chains. And, of course, the virus is another, but the trade war adds to it. So I think there is going to be quite a lot of consideration. I think the bigger changes will be in terms of people being propelled into more remote working easier to avoid long commutes, less business travel, all of these things that effectively companies have found that they can be able to pursue more easily. China itself is looking much more inwardly um, at its own prospects without being as dependent for obvious strategic reasons on the United States um, and is moving much more rapidly to a domestically orientated service economy anyway, and this will give it a, a further further boost um, from the from the virus. Thank you for that, Stephen. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, as usual, there will be content that is deliverable at democm.com uh, if you would like to, to take a look at that. Dr. White will be adding his content as well as, well, there are reports from all the subject matter experts that you have heard from today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be safe and be well. And I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you. The conference has now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time and thank you for your participation. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. 
BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public disclosure slash.